0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. There are goals in life that seem very attainable, and then there are goals which seem practically impossible rising out of poverty or overcoming a traumatic childhood, becoming a best selling author, deadlifting 500 pounds. With impossible goals, the odds seem long, and it isn't clear how to get from point A to point B. My guest today has spent decades figuring out the roadmap for making that journey. His name is Stephen Kotler. He's a peak performance expert, the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, and the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Art of Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer. Today on the show, Stephen talks about how he defines an impossible goal and then unpacks the formula for making the impossible possible. That formula begins with harnessing the five big intrinsic motivators that will give you focus for free and what you need to activate in a certain sequence, and then moves through the six levels of grit that should be trained in a particular order as well. We discuss the importance of creativity and continual learning and how to assess the ROI of your reading. Stephen also explains how flow amplifies the process of achieving peak performance and why you need to read discover the primary flow activity from your childhood. At the end of our conversation, Stephen shares some things you begin doing today to start tackling your impossible goals. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is art of impossible. Stephen joins you now via clearcast.io. All right, Stephen Kotler, welcome back to the show. It's good to be with you. So we had you on the show back in 2014. It's been almost 7 years when you uh, we talked to you about your book The Rise of Superman, which is all about decoding the science of flow, which is this optimal state of attention that, you know, time slows down and you're able to, you know, perform at peak performance. You got a new book out called The Art of the Impossible. How is this book, Big Picture, how is this book, your new one, Art of Impossible, a continuation of your thinking and research that you did in The Rise of Superman? It's a great question.
1: So Art of Impossible is a peak performance primer. And one, the the first thing that distinguishes it, unlike The Rise of Superman, which was built around stories, predominantly athletes accomplishing impossible feats using, using flow and other kind of cognitive peak performance skills to really overcome incredible odds and accomplish possible feats. Flow is one portion. It's actually like one quarter of the full kind of cognitive peak performance picture. And one of the things we learned in training flow, first of all, art of Impossible possible is not a or up the rise of Superman is by no means a how to, it's a storytelling book, right? It's about flow. It's got a ton of information, but it is not You don't come away going, oh, I immediately know step A, step B, step C. Here's how I apply this stuff in my life. And big picture, the truth of the matter is if your interest is in peak performance, flow is necessary but not sufficient. And there's other things that are also required. In fact, most of the sub-skills that are optimized in flow, motivation, grit, goal-setting skills, learning skills, creativity, and problem-solving skills – If you don't have a very solid foundation in these skills as well, it's very diff. Flow is an enormous uptick in performance, you know, hundreds of percentiles above normal. But if you don't have the skills, the actual skills that Flow is going to optimize, if they're not laid in, you're going to have a problem sustaining the state really using it for extended long-term peak performance. And of course, because there are a lot of times when flow just doesn't show up, you're not going to have the requisite skills to keep going without flow. So flow is necessary, but not sufficient. I wanted to do a full picture. This is the full suite. This is everything that is involved in cognitive peak performance. And it turns out when you look at the full suite, when you look at the big picture, what you find out is not surprisingly, it's a sequence it's a system it's all of our biology essentially and peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us and it turns out when you look at all of those things and especially from a neurobiological point of view which is the work i do you start to realize oh wow these things work together in an order in a sequence if you're interested in really maximizing performance these things are much more effective you go farther faster and with less work if you're doing all this stuff at once rather than just trying to utilize flow, for example.
0: So there's a formula to doing the impossible. Let's define the impossible. Yeah, what is the, for, what do you mean by the, the impossible? List yeah, is, is that, is and that, then right. the
1: answer is yes, but that sounds freaking absurd if I don't define the impossible first. So my career has been spent studying people in all walks of life, in all domains, in all fields, in all areas who have accomplished what you could call capital I, impossible. Right? This is doing that which has never been done before. And these could be physical impossibles, four minute miles. These could be intellectual impossibles, Einstein's theory of relativities. These could be cultural impossibles, Rosa Parks sitting at the front of the bus. Doesn't, doesn't really matter because across the board you s- see the same things. But the book is meant to be applied by anybody who is interested in accomplishing what I have called small eye impossible. Small eye impossible is all that stuff that we truly believe is impossible for ourselves. There are lots of examples here. Rising out of poverty is a small eye impossible. Overcoming deep trauma, small eye impossible. Becoming world class in whatever you do, that's small eye impossible. When I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio in the blue collar 70s, and I wanted to be a writer from the time I was four or five years old. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know anybody who was a writer. I didn't know how you became a writer. It was like I woke up one morning and looked at my parents and said, you know, today I think I want to be an elf, no a dwarf, no a hobbit. I'm going to be a hobbit when I grow up, right? It was roughly the same kind of career trajectory in terms of like, how do you get from A to B? So that's what I mean by small I impossible. It's those things we believe are impossible for us where there is no clear path between point A where we are and point B where we want to go. And statistically, little chances of success. That said, the book is applicable to anybody who's interested in increasing peak performance. But the actual system and sequence is designed for anybody interested in going after high, hard goals, exceeding their limitations, exceeding their expectations, and and really turning their biggest dreams into their most recent achievements. That's what the focus is.
0: All right, so it's it's a, it's the formula to, to achieve both big eye impossible, small eye impossible. Mm-hmm. But like, why do you think so many people fail to live up? Like, why don't a lot of people figure out this formula on their own, like of, of achieving that small eye impossible? Like, why do so many people fail to live up to their potential?
1: So here's the real answer, as far as I can tell. When you talk to actual peak performers, and I know you know I, I'm familiar, I'm familiar with your show and your audience. That you know you've got some hard chargers who listen to you on a regular basis. What happens when th- those folks read *The Art of Impossible* and enough have at this point that I can, i think I could speak learnedly about this, or a little bit learnedly—is most people go, "Oh wow, I was doing about 65 percent of this stuff on my own. I didn't even know it, or I did—I was doing it intentionally, but I didn't know it was a sequence. I didn't know how it was designed to work. And there are usually gaps in their game, and it—it it varies. You know what I mean? For example." I did a lot of work. I've done a lot of work with the military and the U.S. Special Forces and things like that. And their gaps tend to be around things like creative problem solving and recovery, things that are not often kind of part of the kind of military structure. They're starting to be, but they're not not there. Other people, a lot of most normal people tend to come off Because they haven't optimized all of the different quantities of intrinsic motivation. They don't have all their intrinsic motivators pointing in the same direction. They don't have, there are six levels of grit, it it appears, and they all seem to be needed to be trained independently. And you may have a couple of them, but you may have gaps in the chain. So a lot of it is that kind of stuff. Because as I said, peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. It's a limited suite of things, but we all have weaknesses right? All of us have weaknesses someplace. And that's usually why we get derailed. It's not the whole picture. It's usually three or four elements in the big picture that are missing. And that once we dial them in and start to understand how these things work together and how to get them to work together, that usually tends to be the problem.
0: One thing you say in the book, you make a point about this idea that this is all about harnessing your, your innate biology that I already have. So I want to go back to this idea. So, I mean, what, what this is all about, what The Art of Impossible is about, is helping people, you know, harness their innate biological processes that allow them to perform at their peak. Something you say, you said that biology scales, personality doesn't. What do you mean by that?
1: You've seen this a lot in peak performance. So unfortunately, fairly frequently in the world of, it's, it's less done in the world of like the world I, I'm in, which is like really hardcore science back peak performance stuff, but you see it a lot more in coaching, and you see it all over self-help. People figure out what works for them, and they try to teach other people. Hey, this worked for me. Let me train you in it. Let me build a system. Let me build a company. And invariably, the vast majority of what works for you is not going to work for other people. And the reason is, when you're talking about peak performance, certain elements that are very foundational to how you should approach peak performance, like where are you on the introversion to extroversion scale? Or how, what are your risk tolerances? These are things that are biologically hardwired at least to 50%, if not more, depending on whose numbers you're going by, and shaped by very early childhood experience. They're more in the category of biological traits. Now, we used to believe traits were totally immutable. You're, you're born with whatever, like where you are on the big five personality index is you're going to stay there the rest of your life. We now know that's not true. But as a general rule, if you want to change a trade, if you're very introverted, and you want to become very extroverted, it can take five to 10 years worth of work to do that. Now, somebody might be interested in doing that work, but if you give them a peak performance system, right, and they haven't done that work, and they're very introverted, and it was designed by an extrovert, they're going to crash and burn. Same thing with risk tolerances, same thing with about seven or eight foundational keys in peak performance. Biology, on the other hand, scales. When you go back, one way to think about this that's maybe a little easier is when you talk about psychology, and most of the terms that you get out of coaching or self-help, if they're scientific at all, they come out of psychology. Psychology is essentially a metaphor. So the simple example here is mindset. When most people in the world use the term mindset, they mean attitude towards life, When psychologists use mindset, they actually mean attitudes towards learning, and when neurobiologists use the term mindset, they are actually talking about something that happens in the thalamus in the brain with thalamic gating, basically how information that is entering the brain gets filtered, and sort of top-down gating which is also how information in the brain gets filtered. It's a very specific thing taking place within very specific networks. And it means a very precise thing. The very precise thing that it means is what you need to get the reaction you're looking for. You're not going to always get it when you're, when you're hearing it psychologically. But when you take it down to mechanism, the basic biology, A plus B equals C kind of thing. You get reliable, repeatable results for anyone. It doesn't matter who you are, which is why we train at the Flow Research Collective about a thousand people a month. And we've been doing this for a while at this point. That's a very large sample size. And we can tell you we train everybody from the U.S. Special Forces to Olympic and professional athletes through like soccer moms from Iowa and insurance brokers from Kansas. This, When you go down to biology, it works for everyone. When you try to stay at the level of the psychology, it's often going to exclude people. And when you come in from the level of personality, you will often have a disaster. You'll just make turns. You, it either won't work for very long or you'll create a big mess.
0: All right, let's, let's talk about this formula that goes down to the biological level of peak performance. And the first part of this is motivation. And that's another one of those words that gets thrown around a lot in the, the self-help community and psychology where, you know, you got to be motivated. And you're like, what is motivation? Like, what, what, exactly, is motivation, is, yeah, right? what exactly What is motivation? And, and, like, what, and why what, does it matter,
1: right? Like, okay, right. Well, I, motiv- I want motivation. And okay, but what is it and why does it matter, right? That's the question you're asking? Right. So first of all, depending on who you talk to, but as general motivation is a psychological catch-all term for three or four, depending on how you want to break them down, categories of skills. One, there's external and internal or extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation are things we want that are outside of ourselves, money, sex, fame. Those are all extrinsic motivators. Then there are intrinsic motivators. These are are things that sort of motivate us automatically, and I'll speak more to that in a second. Curiosity, mastery, autonomy, passion, and purpose are the biggest five. There are others, but those are the big five. Simultaneously, when people talk about motivation, they're also talking about grit. And as I mentioned before, there are actually six levels of grit skills, and peak performers need to train sort of all of them. Now, we're going to start with intrinsic and extrinsic motivation that's where the conversation starts and why does motivation matter it's a great question let's start there you have to actually back up one step and understand that when it comes to peak performance like real performance in the world you have as a human being very few big levers to reach for in any given situation the two things that you really have is your focus where do you put your attention and what do you choose to ignore and the action you're going to take to accomplish whatever it is you're doing. If you put action and attention on the same thing over and over and over again, you get a habit, right? And all a habit is, is it's the action performed without the attention, right? You no longer have to focus on it because you've, aud- you've, learned, you've learned how to do the thing and you can perform it unconsciously, which is great because when you can perform it unconsciously, The brain is much more efficient. It has greater processing speed. A lot of things that we need go up. So that's the big picture. When you talk about motivation, what you're really talking about is those things. Like remember, action and focus are about the two biggest things we can work with. There's not a hell of a lot you can do on the action side other than keep doing the action over and over and over for years until you get better at it. Focus is your big lever. Motivation gives you focus for free. It's a huge deal. Your brain is 2% of your body mass. It consumes at rest about 25% of your energy. That's huge. When you're actually doing something, it goes up from there. So if you can get focus for free, that's a big deal. Energetically, calorically, everything else. Think about curiosity. Everything starts with curiosity. It's the foundational human motivator. And it's, gives us a little bit of focus for free. When we're curious about something, when you're interested in what somebody is saying to you, it's not hard to pay attention to them. It happens automatically. When you're into a subject, reading a book is not hard. You're psyched to read the book. You can't wait to get back to the book, et cetera. But if you're trying to page through something that's really a textbook and you're not into it, twice as much work. And think about curiosity neurobiologically, curiosity is literally a little bit of the neurochemical norepinephrine and a little bit of the neurochemical dopamine. That's all it is. Both of these are focusing. They do a lot of different things in the brain. They're pleasure chemicals. So they reward our curiosity, right? Curiosity feeds itself. What they mean is the chemicals that are produced by curiosity feel really, really good. And curiosity breeds curiosity curiosity because of these neurochemicals. The neurochemicals drive focus, right? That's what we're experiencing and, and excitement. That's the emotional side of it, but they also prime the brain for learning. So when we're curious about something, it is much easier to retain that information for later. And it goes up from there. The secret with curiosity is passion is what follows curiosity. Passion is nothing more than the intersection of multiple curiosities, plus, you know, playing at that intersection and producing. Series of wins. That's really the foundational ingredients in passion. Neurobiologically, it's the same cocktail. Instead of a little bit of norepinephrine and dopamine, you get a lot of norepinephrine and dopamine. In which case, think about I'll give you a simple example of passion. Think about romantic love. That is a passion. Romantic love. This is, by the way, not my work. This, This particular bit is Helen Fisher's work at Rutgers on the cocktails underneath love. But romantic love is essentially a lot of norepinephrine, and a lot of dopamine. When you were falling in love with somebody, we've all done that. We've all had the experience. Think about how much attention you pay to that person, right? You can't even stop thinking about them. That's the big deal with passion, and it sort of goes from there. Passion, once we can take that passion and couple it to a purpose greater than ourselves, a cause outside of ourselves, that's purpose. Once we have our purpose, what do you need next? It's obvious. You need the freedom, the autonomy To pursue that purpose. And once you have the freedom and autonomy to pursue that purpose, you need the skills to pursue it well, aka mastery. Those are our big five intrinsic motivators. That is the order that they are designed to be created and utilized and that they work best. And when they're all pointed in the same direction, a lot of good things happen, including you get a ton of flow for a bunch of different reasons. But so, not only do you get all the benefits, focus for free, amplified learning, et cetera, et cetera, when everything's pointing in the same direction, you also drop into flow far more easily, and flow amplifies motivation, productivity, creativity, learning, empathy, perception, a couple of other things. So it's a big boost and it and it's and it's a huge boost as well. So that's what I mean by there's an order and a sequence. and that's just on the intrinsic motivation side, though I will say, the research does say that you want to start with extrinsic motivation you want to start with the external motivation up until the point that sort of you your basic safety and security needs are met if you're still struggling to pay a lip make make rent and pay your bills and feed yourself it's difficult to start cultivating curiosity you can do it but it's a, it's hard because you are your system is sort of redlined so what the research shows and this is Dr. Daniel Kahneman's research we need basically to make enough money to cover our basic needs with a little left over for discretionary spending, and once we get to that point, extrinsic external motivators to ourselves while we still want those things, right like we and they will still motivate us. they are not the best way to drive. Increase performance and productivity and creativity and those things. In, in other words, once we get to kind of basic needs level, we have to start layering in intrinsic motivators to consistently achieve peak performance.
0: Okay, so let's do a, a recap here. The big five intrinsic motivators that start you down the road to doing the impossible are be curious, and that gives you focus for free. After that, have a love or a passion, then you want to couple that passion with something outside of yourself. Work to get the autonomy to pursue that purpose and then hone your skills, hone the mastery to achieve great things. And this is a specific sequence you want ordered the right way, pointing the right direction. So, I mean, if you're following this sequence that you we, you laid out, should someone who's you know wants to write a book, for example, should they think, all right, I want to write a book, so I should write something that I'm curious about, what I'm passionate about, what I'm interested in. And I'm not going to worry about whether I'm going to make a lot of money if I'm going to get paid for it. And because I'm starting with my curiosity, those other intrinsic motivators will cascade down and build into peak performance. Yes.
1: Yes is the answer to that question. Same thing with learning, right? So learning works the same way. And I'm not saying don't write the book that's going to earn you money. I'm saying find a way to connect the thing that's going to earn you money to stuff you are foundationally curious about. One, and two, I will make an argument that if you're not foundationally curious about a subject and you're going to write a book and you think it's going to make you money, you're wrong. Like it won't work because you're competing with too many people like myself who are very, very good at this, who've been doing this a long time. And I know that my passion for a subject comes through in the text. And it's very powerful to people who read it. People love it. It's part, one of the reasons people like reading my books. And I think that's true. It's not just me, it's across the boards. You wanna have that. That's something you know that you have that's your own that your competitors don't have when it comes to writing a book.
0: And I mean, you could apply this too to let's say if you're you're not thinking about writing a book or starting a business, but like in your own job you could apply these principles too. Like instead of, you know, try to figure out some autonomy. Yeah. Figure some some autonomy. For example, mastery
1: is the big one that most people miss in their jobs. Autonomy and mastery are really like, you know, may, I mean, a lot of people may not have jobs that are totally lined up with their passion or their purpose. Those are, those are different issues, but often You can reframe, you know, I used to do this all the time when I was a young journalist, right? I would have to sort of write to save my life because I was paying my bills as a freelance journalist and I would have to produce tremendous amounts of copy about tons of subjects, including a lot of stuff that wasn't the sexiest stuff in the world for me. But I would always find something in the subject that I was curious about. And I would also find something in the subject that if I Like I would try to, maybe I was writing an article. I remember one one really great example, and I pulled it off. Uh, I will never tell you where the article appeared, but uh, I uh, I had to write an article on data caves. It was very early on, and I was writing about some of the earliest data caves. Now, data caves are kind of neat, but they're not super neat to me. But I used the assignment to learn to write in the writing style of one of my favorite authors, and that's what I did. So I found a way... To Yeah, I had to write about something that wasn't super interesting to me, but I found something in the subject where I was like, oh, this thing is interesting to me. I mean, cool about this. Now, you know, I can definitely like that piques my interest and I'm going to try to write it in a style that advances my cause, my mastery cause, right? It stretches me outside my normal skill set, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, you can apply that stuff everywhere and you have to, you absolutely have to because it's otherwise you can't. Just, you can't generate enough energy for performing at your best. It just won't work over time. You can fake it, obviously, for a little while, but not for a long time.
0: Yeah, that mastery component, that's something that motivated my dad throughout his career. I remember when I was like 20, and I asked my dad, I was like, dad, he was a federal- What did your dad do? So he was a federal game warden for the U.S. Okay. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, you know, growing up, I saw it, like he did the exact same thing every day. He had a season to his, his career. During the fall, winter, he was out checking duck hunters. But then he was just going to work every day, same time, writing reports, talking to people, investigating. And I, I remember asking him like, when I was 20, he's like, Dad, how do you do that? Like every day, it's like the same thing. And he, he said, like, I just, what motivates me is I try to get better and better every day. And I'm like, Okay that makes sense. And that, 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 I mean, he had a, he had a fruitful and he enjoyed his career and a fulfilling career. Yeah.
1: It's, there are certain conditions, you know, and later on in the book, I talk about recovery and things like that. And, and thus I talk about burnout. There is, if you have a passive aggressive boss who is constantly moving the goalposts, get out from under. That's just like, there's not a whole lot in that particular situation That's a, I want to figure out how to get a different job situation, but in almost every other situation, the path of mastery and kind of reframing stuff. So it aligns with fundamental goals and things like that is very effective. It's a very effective way to get better. And, you know, any career I always say, I mean, this is one of the hardest things I see for, for writers, for artists, for, I see it with coders. Anything where there's a sort of a creative skill set at the core of what you do, what usually happens to people is in their 20s. 20s are when you get famous for what you can do, right? Who you are. You get famous or well known or you rise in your company, et cetera, et cetera, based on who you are. Once you get to a certain level, nobody cares who you are anymore they now now you have to like join a team and lift up the whole team so for me it was super clear i remember when i finally i was i was roughly around 30 years old and i and i had sort of moved into the really like a big leagues for writing was working for the new york times sunday magazine wired that that level and I was already. I had published a bestselling book. I, you know, I was a known writer. I had published. A, nobody cared. They wanted the best Wired magazine story I could write. Nobody wanted a great Stephen Kotler story. And that's the like. That's the 30s in everybody's career, right? You end up like you can only take yourself so far, and you have to sort of hit yourself to a company or a thing, and then they want you to be creative or work inside of their boxes for usually that. Phase lasts about a decade, and you can either use it to move towards mastery in your skills or not. You know what I mean? Like, it, it there's not, there are ways around it occasionally, I guess, but they're rare in careers, and it's a long sort of stopover. And if you don't figure that trick out, you're
0: going to stall. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors, and now back to the show. Okay. So the, we've been talking about these intrinsic motivators and these can like, this is like basically free energy in a, in a sense, but like you also talk about there's this idea of grit and it's like when I'm so, Yeah. yeah let's, when most people,
1: let's walk it. Let's yeah. walk it all the way through for people. Cause and I'll do it quickly. Sure. Once you have your five intrinsic motivators set up and pointing in the direction, you have goals are next. You need three levels of goals in your life for big performance. You need mission level. Goals, what I call a massively transformative purpose. You need high-hard goals, and then you need clear goals. A mission level is, let's just stick with your book writing example. I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the world. That's a mission level goal. A high-hard goal is, I want to go get a degree in journalism. I want to write a book on chocolate. I want to write a book on weightlifting. I want to take your pick. Right? Those are high-hard goals. They're like one- to five-year projects. And Then you need your clear goals, your daily action plans. Now, there's a specific sequence that clear goals should be set in, and there's ways they should be set. There's a lot of formality that I go over in the book. We can skip over that. But once you've got motivation gets you into the game, goals tell you where you're going. And then you're gonna need grit because the motivation is gonna run out and not all tasks are gonna produce flow. And there are, it appears there are six levels of grit that we need to train. And I suggest training them in a specific order predominantly because training grit, while um, human beings are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly gritty creatures, we're far grittier than most people ever, ever assume, but we don't often get there um, because there are these multiple levels of grit, and if you're training them sort of out of sequence, it can be really demotivating. And grit sort of starts with persistence, and you want to start with physical persistence. So the way that you want to start training grit is – if you're working out in the gym and you're doing three sets of ten, make one of those a set of eleven, and then you're going to make two of them a set of eleven the next time you go back to the gym, and maybe three, right? That sort of thing where you're just pushing yourself a little farther than you normally go, and over a very long, regularly. The thing with grit is it's not just enough to push yourself; you have to do it reliably and repeatedly so that the brain starts to trust that that new level of energy is actually possible for you. Your body's a homeostatic organism, right? It it likes to burn the same amount of energy all the time. So when we have to be grittier, we're saying, no, 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 meet the next moment with more energy than normal. That's a big thing for the body. The body doesn't like to do that. So we have to do that reliably and repeatedly over time. So we start to trust ourselves. Once you have physical grit, you start working on mental grit and um, and ultimately you're going towards the grit to sort of control your thoughts and 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 cause of rein in your negative thinking and a bunch of stuff like that. Then you need the grit to be your best when you're at your worst. That's another grit, and it can be, needs to be trained independently. Then once you sort of started to layer that in, you can start working on the grit to train up your weaknesses. That's a very demotivated, it's very key to peak performance because – Everybody's got weaknesses, and in crisis situations, we will. The weaknesses are what's going to sink us, right? And but they're really hard to train because we're there. Our weaknesses for very they're so not aligned with our curiosity, our value. like those are the things that are totally outside of our motivation that we freaking hate. So you don't want to start working on your weaknesses until all your motivation is lined up, and you've got other grit skills, because otherwise it'll crush all that earlier work you've done. Then there's also the grit to face your fear which I think is it's foundational to peak performance as I'm sure you know. Often people start training it too early. Its fear is phenomenal. Think about all the focus you get for free when you can start to use fear as a motivator, but you can't start to really really work with the stuff that terrifies you until you've established a bunch of other sort of grit skills. And then the last grit is actually the grit to recover And I'm talking about active recovery protocols. And the the issue here is peak performers. And when I say peak performers, I'm also talking about where if you were, if you started with curiosity and you worked your way to this point in the sequence, you are kind of, you're now approaching life with way more fuel, way more energy. And you're starting to move into that category. Peak performers don't like to take any time off. Time off feels like laziness right? It feels like slowing down, like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is wrong, right? I shouldn't be doing this. And that is also, you know, when we work with, as I said, when I work with the the military a lot, this is the recovery is often where they have their biggest problems. Also with a lot of professional athletes, they don't actually recover enough for what it is that they're doing. So I think of recovery as a grit skill. There's specific ways to train recovery that are sort of covered in the book, but that's the grit stack, and from there, we you know you you jump next into learning, but that's that takes us through the motivation triad of drive, grit, and goals is, is what we've covered so far, basically.
0: Yeah, that, that grit of uh, be your best at your worst. That one stood out to me for some reason. I don't know why, but I, I it I've stood been out.
1: Well, I it's, so this was a that was a big wake up call for me actually, because I was writing on grit, I was working on grit, I was tracking the neuroscience of grit, and I was on the phone with Josh Waiteskin brilliant peak performance mind. And Josh said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, but you're missing the most important one that I that I work on and we started talking about it and he was totally right and I started training it myself and I was it's not particularly hard to train. It's just incredibly unpleasant, but wow is it it's a level of confidence so much of peak performance is about confidence at a really subtle level. A lot of the grit skills, right? Is it's not just about the grit that you're building up, the ability to persist, but it's the confidence that you get from the grit that maybe even be the bigger deal. And once you start training being your best when you're at your worst, wow, does it calm you down in, in some previously high stress situations? That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I've I've incorporated this with my with my weight training. Like sometimes I'll, I'll still train even when I'm tired because like it's just for the habit and I enjoy it. But also there's something about like you learn how to perform even when you're not feeling the best. That's,
1: that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, that, and, I, and, it's, and it's super, super key. And I think, by the way, people who are athletes who have long, you know, histories in their life of athletics, sooner or later, you learn some of those skills, right? Because athletics demands them. But if that wasn't your, your path to wherever you are, it, you know, you're probably, you're probably, there's a gap or two there.
0: All right. So we've talked about motivation. The, the next thing that separates peak performers from the rest and doing the impossible is they continually learn. And you have this great section. And again, you're, you're picking up where your motivation left off. You want to follow your curiosity. You make this really compelling case on continual learning about reading books, to learn instead of just reading blog posts or watching a YouTube video which is most people with that's what they want to do when they want to learn something why why read books and like what's your process for picking books on learning a new subject or you know learning more about a subject you're already interested in so there's two sides to this right let me speak to learning for half a second
1: from a bigger picture before sure. we dive into this um only cuz I just find it helpful so Flow is peak performance. We, we've cleared that up at, at the start. The more time you spend f- in flow, the farther you're going to get faster, right? Flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. The most important one is known as the challenge-skills balance. Simple idea is this. Flow follows focus. It shows up when most of our attention, all of our attention is on the task at hand, right? When we're totally focused on the thing that we're doing And we're pushing our skills to the utmost. We're using our skills to the utmost. This is the challenge-skills balance, right? We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to sort of stretch but not snap. For that to happen, if you're using your skills to the utmost, the most important thing you can do to maximize flow, you're going to be learning. That's the only way you can use your skills to the utmost. It requires learning to onboard those skills and then accelerated learning when you're using them to the utmost. If you do not have solid learning skills, you're going to have really sustained problems right at this spot. So you may have dialed in motivation. You may have set the proper goals. You may be gritty. But if you can't learn, you can't actually keep up with the acceleration that Furrow P- provides. And so one of the first questions you got to ask is, what the hell should I learn from? Right? What What are the best learning materials? And to answer that question, there's a section, as you referred to it, as the ROI on, in, on reading, the return on investment. And what I do is I just pointed out from an author's point of view the time investment and the information density that results – in every kind of version of media that people might consume for example a blog i write a blog now i write a blog it's 1200 words long i'm going it's going to take me 2 days i'm going to work on it for 3 or 4 hours on day 1 i'm going to read a, i probably have read a bunch to get in there but i'll i'll, I'll talk to a couple of experts and I'll write for about four hours. The next day, I, I'll talk to another expert, and I'll write for about four more hours. So average reading speed is about 250 words a minute. Average blog is, let's say this blog is 1,000 words long. It's going to take you four minutes to read that. So I give you about eight hours of my life and my brain power, and you give me four minutes. That seems like a kind of cool trade. But then you go up to the level of like a magazine article, say what I would write for Wired. These articles are about 5,000 words long, so they're going to take the average reader about 20 minutes. How long does it take me to write one? Well, for uh, an article for Wired, I'm going to do about a month's worth of research on the front end. Then I'm going to report the actual story, and that's probably going to take about three months. And Then it's probably going to take two to three months for me to write it, and you're going to have the benefit of my editor my, the publisher and a fact checker and probably a couple other people. But so you're going to get four or five brains on the problem. Plus instead of interviewing two people for a magazine article, I'll interview 25 to 30. So you get 35 people's brains, roughly eight months of work, and it costs you 20 minutes. So clearly a magazine article for information density and for kind of brain power, it's a much better return on investment. You're getting so much more. A book, Art of Impossible, Art of Impossible is a book based on 30 years of research. It's based on hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews. Its The components of the book have appeared in dozens and dozens and dozens of publications. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people's brainpower has gone into Art of Impossible. And it's going to take you about seven hours to read. You can get 30 years of my life for seven hours. You can get eight months of my life for 20 minutes, or you can get two days of my life for four minutes. That's the ROI on reading. And listening YouTube videos, podcasts, they're maybe better than a blog, but they're not nearly as dense as a magazine article. They're somewhere in between. They're not a particularly good investment either. So if you're looking for learning, Books are the densest form of information available on the planet. They're just the most bang for your buck for your time. Books, books as my, one of my first mentors used to say, books are where they keep the secrets.
0: And you also, you lay out this uh, sequence you follow in, in, in picking out books to read that I, that I actually, I followed myself. Like when I've researched articles, I've done the exact same thing. And it's basically you start off, you find a book that's like popular, the like kind of book you'd find at an airport, read that, it's easy. And then you just get more and more dense, more difficult until you're like basically reading journal articles and science yeah, journals.
1: Yeah, because you want to like, a lot of learning, just how the brain learns is about Kind of figuring out what is the vocabulary of a subject and sort of what is the history, the chronology of a subject, the ordering of the ideas, right? Any Anything you're trying to learn was a voyage of discovery for people. If somebody had a question. Somebody answered that question, led to another question, led to another. So, like, that's – you could consider that the, the, because the brain naturally – our brains are natural storytellers. We link cause with effect automatically, right, because that's survival, so historical narratives, this came first, this came second, this came third, we automatically understand the brain knows how to do that. You don't have to work as hard. And once you have the historical narrative, you have the big Christmas tree, and then you can start hanging ornaments. And the truth of the matter, as you know, because you've learned a bunch of difficult subjects, some colossal amount of the actual information in a subject, depending on the subject, but definitely over 40% in pretty much any subject, is contained in the language of the subject. Right. And it's not even a whole lot of language. It's usually a lot less vocabulary than you actually think you need to learn. So I always start there. Like, start with the most fun thing. Follow, follow your curiosity through the subject. And I think the most important thing for people to know is as you get into harder and harder books... People make this mistake. They think there's a quiz later, right? And they, they like, if they don't understand something, they stop and they reread and they take notes and that blah, 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 and all that stuff. And that's actually, you're fighting how your brain naturally learns. The best way to learn a subject is to follow your curiosity through the subject. Take notes around the things that naturally catch your attention because that naturally will produce a lot of norepinephrine which primes the brain for learning. And you'll have an easier time remembering it. Those are the things. So the big point for a lot of people is as you read your way through a subject, don't get mad at yourself if you don't understand everything. There's no way you're going to understand everything. It's a new subject. And don't try and don't get mad and don't like just keep going because learning is unconscious. Even if you're lost, your brain is still picking up information. Just keep going.
0: All right. So we've talked about motivation. We talked about learning. The third component of peak performance is creativity. Tell us about that. What is, what's going on there? Yes.
1: I, well, so simply put, everybody's going to get this really quickly. High, hard goals, by definition, I'm at point A. It's a high, hard goal or a mission level goal because I don't know how to get there. Right? Like I don't know how to get there. So if you don't know how to get there, you need creativity, creative problem solving because you need to steer that's what creativity is in the equation learning motivation gets you in the game learning allows you to continue to play creativity is how you steer and creativity is where things like learning and like motivation these are invisible skills right they're not they're not visible things and most of what is required for creativity is a shift in states of consciousness less than a set of skills So it's tricky to learn how to how to think creatively and how to be more creative, but it's foundational, both, you know, short term in the moment, how am I creative now? And then what I call um, and did some extensive research on long-haul creativity. What does it take to to sustain creativity over a long career? Which, you know, it's interesting when I got interested in this question of long-haul creativity, because it's, it's, it's very not, it's not studied very much. There's a lot of stuff on how can I be more creative for the project I'm working on, right? Or I'm going to spend the next 10 years of my life doing a podcast. How can I be creative doing this podcast? Like people think that way, but they don't think, oh my God, I'm going to have to reinvent myself and reinvent myself and reinvent myself. And yet when you meet people, whatever the field, who have had really long careers, most people have had to reinvent themselves seven, eight times. And I think that's with technology today, I think that's going to speed up a little bit, right? And so we're going to need to be able to... Re- we're going to need that creativity and we're going to need to sustain that creativity over the long haul. And there's a whole different set of skills required for that. But that's the creative component in the picture.
0: And again, where does flow fit in all this? Like, Does flow just kind of come in every now and then to you know supercharge this stuff?
1: Well, flow shows up every step of the way. And so, for example creativity which would when, when i say the term creativity I'm, I'm actually technically talking about the definition of creativity which is the creation of novel I- novel ideas that are useful and when you break that apart cuz cuz get actually at a, a skill set level that's idea generation problem identification right there's there's actually tons of substeps in between that also sort of go into this component now, on the flow side, I will say creativity is a flow trigger. What, I'm, what I actually mean by that is the experience of insight or intuition, which is when the brain links two novel ideas together or a new idea with an old idea to produce something startling and new. That experience of insight produces a little bit of dopamine. We've all had this experience. You've done a crossword puzzle. You get an answer right. That's your brain that's doing pattern recognition. And when you get an answer right, that little rush of pleasure, that's dopamine. It's rewarding, right? It's rewarding you finding a pattern because that's good for survival. And interestingly, dopamine, norepinephrine does this as well, but dopamine really does this. It tunes signal-to-noise ratios in the brain, which is a fancy way of saying we find more patterns. When When you notice more signal instead of noise, you find more patterns. So creativity triggers flow, and then flow triggers creativity. And it's a it's a positive feedback loop. So as you start to, and same thing with learning, right? We talked about the challenge skills balance. So as you start to layer these things in more, all the curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery, not only are those our five intrinsic motivators, they're also all flow triggers. So what you're doing as you, as you're moving along this thing, you're layering in more and more flow triggers into your daily life, you're going to get more flow as a result. So, yes, flow is coming along much more reliably and repeatedly as you move along to amplify all your efforts. And since flow is where we're going to go next, let's just talk about that amplification. Let me put some numbers on things so people understand what we're talking about. And these – I'll try to give credit to – because these are not all my numbers. This work was done by a lot of different people, and I'll – try to point you at who did the research. For example, McKinsey studied top executives over the course of 10 years and they were looking at productivity. They were running around the world and this is a self-reported number. So grain of salt a little bit, but they did a lot of work and they talked to a lot of people. And on average, top executives reported being 500% more productive in flow. That's enormous. That means you go to work on Monday, you spend Monday in a flow state, you take Tuesday through Friday off and get as much done as everybody else. Two days a week, you're a 1,000% more productive than the competition. That's flow's impact on motivation and productivity. Learning, and this is work that was done predominantly by the Department of Defense, they find that soldiers in flow, for example, will learn 240% faster than normal. Other studies have taken that all the way as high as as, as 500% faster than normal, but it, it sort of depends. Creativity, a lot of different people that worked on this will spike 400 to 700%. And then we see a bunch of additional things, creative, uh, cooperation, collaboration, empathy, environmental awareness, which is basically our ability to perceive the natural world and a whole bunch of physical skills. You get strength, you get stamina, and you also get fast twitch muscle response and it deadens the pain response. So that's the full sort of, well, that's all the stuff that gets amplified and flow. And we could talk about why if you, if you want to, like we understand the biology underneath, underneath that, but when you say yes you get more flow along the way that's a big deal that's the that, that was the point of all this it's not a it's that's not a small thing and because flow is directly tied to happiness well-being meaning and purpose meaning the more flow you get the higher you, the more well-being happiness meaning and purpose and things like that you get you know it ends up being this incredibly positive self-reinforcing cycle
0: what I thought was interesting you had this great section in the book where you know throughout the book you've been highlighting all this modern research scientific research about it, how to perform at your peak but then you found that 150 years ago uh, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was basically kind of talking about the same thing with his philosophy how did you make how, yeah, how did so, you make that connection
1: so one well I, I have a minor in philosophy so this is you know i this is something I, I long time fascination my chief scientist is also before he was a, a neuro guy is a uh, philosophy major. He's got a huge Nietzsche tattoo on his shoulder. Like we're we're big Nietzsche fans at, at the Flow Research Collective in general. But Nietzsche is important because one, I said peak performance is nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you, and it's a limited set of skills as, as we've been talking about. Right. So Nietzsche was the first guy to come after Darwin. Darwin said, "Hey, the body evolves." And we gotta use science to study this. And Nietzsche and a couple other people went, holy crap, mind evolves. And Nietzsche was interested in peak performance, right? We, well, everybody's familiar with the term the Übermensch, the Superman, right? That was his whole project. How do we turn humans into Superman? Or my favorite Nietzsche quote, which is, man is something that needs to be overcome. What have you done today to overcome him? And, you know, he wants to rise above our kind of, Foundational nature in a sense. And Nietzsche came to a four step process and it's the same frickin' process we've been talking about. His process starts with motivation, right? Find an organizing idea for your life. In other words, get all your intrinsic motivators point in the same direction. He then goes into suffering is mandatory because you have to learn grit skills and then learning and creativity come next. And then what do you use to turbo boost the whole goddamn thing? flow, only Nietzsche didn't call it flow, he called it Rausch, which is German for overflowing joy. So, it's the same formula. It hasn't changed in 150 years because the biology is the same.
0: Well, so we've been talking about this this, the formula big picture, but for those who are, we're about to start, we're starting a new year, like what are some things that people can do, a few suggestions that people can do on a daily or weekly basis to start accomplishing that, you know, maybe the small line possible in their life in 2021? So
1: I mean, there's a lot, right? Like what what you end up finding is that peak performance is seven things you want to do every day and about six things you want to do every week. There's a bunch of onboarding processes, but what it comes down to is about seven daily practices and five, four, five to six weekly practices. Most of the daily practices are very short, five minutes here, five minutes there, 25 minutes here. And the biggest one is you got to, this is where we'll start. If you're not sleeping seven, eight hours a night, forget about it. You just can't do this work. The body needs seven to eight hours of sleep a night. There are people who think, "Oh, I can get by on less." Go take some cognitive tests when you're tired and see how you perform. They're all over online. Just see test your test your cognitive function when awake versus a little tired versus a lot tired. You'll be shocked. You'll sleep seven to eight hours a night. It's like it's fast enough. That's I'm going to start there. And the second thing I'm going to say after that. Everybody has a primary flow activity. This is that thing you did as a child that just produced a ton of flow. I don't care if it was, you know, staring at dinosaur skeletons in the Natural History Museum, learning to dance to hip hop, building model airplanes, doing gymnastics, skateboarding, whatever it was, there was something that, you know, whenever you did it, it just sucked your brain in and you just totally dropped in. And it's a very reliable source of flow in your life this primary flow activity usually gets set down by adults. As we get more responsible, we stop doing our highest flow activities, right? And the thing is, two things that are important here. One, the more flow you get, the more flow you get. Flow is a focusing skill. It's a kind of way of paying attention to the thing that you're doing. So if I go skiing on Monday and drop into a flow state and then go to work on Thursday, I've got a better chance of getting into flow. A. B., The massively heightened creativity you see in flow, 400 to 700 percent, this is Teresa Mobley's work at Harvard, outlasts the flow state by a day, maybe two. So you will get more flow in general and more creativity simply for just doubling down on this activity and the amount when you move into flow, it resets the nervous system, meaning all the stress hormones in the body are flushed out of your system. They're replaced by a lot of positive, feel-good neurochemistry, If you are running hot, if you are anxious, if it has been a tough year, and I don't know anybody who got through 2020, 2021, and it wasn't a tough year, you know what I mean? Like you're probably running hot, so you gotta relieve that anxiety. These are just like the two simplest things that I think are really important. I like to end my day by creating a clear goals list for the next day. Huge lift, especially if we're working from home. Start with your hardest task. And figure out how many things you can do in a day and be excellent at them. That's how many items go on your clear goals list. And anything that's going to take energy, you got to have a tough conversation with your boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or husband, that goes on the list. You got to walk the dog, that goes on anything that burns energy that you got to be present for, goes on the list kind of thing. Clear goals list. End your day. Practicing some distraction management, meaning turn off anything that's going to distract you from kind of your, your first high-hardest task in the morning. And then clear goals list. Start with the hardest task. Work to your easiest task. That follows kind of the way our energy works throughout the day, et cetera, et cetera. Those are just a handful of quick tips I can keep going
0: well, people can find a ton more details on these practices and everything else we've talked about in your book. And there's a lot of really interesting insights in it. We scratched the surface today. Uh, so where can people go to learn more about the book and the rest of your work?
1: First of all, you can go to theartofimpossible.com,
0: which is kind
1: of the webpage for the book. And by this way, if you want to learn all the kind of ins and outs of the book, check out the blog section on that website because there's tons of stuff up there. com will get you all things me, all the, you know, there's 13 other books, et cetera. And if you're interested in flow stuff, flowresearchcollective.com. And one more thing I want to, you asked what else can people do? Besides so your primary flow activity, if you go to flowblocker.com, www.flowblocker.com, we built a giant diagnostic at the Flow Research Collective. There are six major blockers of flow that most people... And most people have one or two of them in their life, but there's usually one main one. And we just built a diagnostic and we're giving it away for free because it's a really like if you double down on your primary flow activity and you sort of take the flow blocker diagnostic and remove the one thing that's really sort of standing between you and more flow, those two things alone will start turning up the knob on flow and literally like just creating a clear goals list at the end of the day maybe a little bit of uh, distraction management at the end of the day so you're kind of ready to dive into your next day and getting seven to eight hours of sleep at night. There's a bunch of other things in the book that you can kind of look at, but that's a really, that's a really simple, basic playlist that anybody could start with. And it's a fun, sort of a fun playlist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. As opposed to some of the other stuff.
0: Well, Stephen, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for your interest. I appreciate it.
0: My guest today was Stephen Kotler. He's the author of the new book, The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Go pick up a copy today. It's a great book to start 2021 off with. Also, you can find out more information about his work at his website, stephenkotler.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash art of impossible where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. friend or family member who you think we get something out of it until next time this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to they win podcast but put what you've heard into action